The reason we have this enormous wealth gap in this country between African Americans and whites is because African Americans deny the opportunity to own an asset that whites were subsidized to own and that increased in value. And this was a racially specific program. We all have this obligation to redress the harms of that our government imposed on us and we're all paying for. And you know, it's not, this isn't just a problem, a black problem, an African-American problem. It's a, it's an issue that affects all of us and it, um, you know, it harms all of our communities. It keeps us polarized, it keeps us separate. It creates and underlies, you know, the most serious racial disparities and social problems of our country. And we can't sort of get past that and make gains unless we're all involved and all step up to the obligation we have to address it. Welcome back to the DEI podcast. I'm Max Gaston. My guests for today are Richard and Leah Rothstein, co-authors of the new book, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. The book is a follow-up to Richard's 2017 critically acclaimed bestseller, The Color of Law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. Richard and Leah are a father and daughter dynamic duo who both have had long and remarkable careers working to address racial injustice and social inequality. Richard is a distinguished fellow of the Economic Policy Institute and a senior fellow emeritus at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Leah is a former community and union organizer, housing and community development policy consultant, and criminal justice reform researcher. Together, they've published a book that offers actionable steps to challenge state-driven residential segregation of black and white Americans. And as we'll discuss during our conversation, the book is aimed at all those people who want to confront segregation and inequality, but don't yet appreciate the levers of power they hold in their own hands to make a difference. Here is my interview with Richard and Leah Rothstein. Richard and Leah Rothstein, I'm so excited to welcome you both to the DEI podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Richard, I want to start with you first. In The Color of Law, you talked about how Residential segregation in America is the byproduct of governments and courts at the local, state, and federal levels, all upholding racist policies to maintain the separation of whites and blacks. And in just action, you and Leah both explain how this residential segregation today underlies our most serious social problems and how difficult it is to now achieve integration after segregation has occurred. But at its core, just Action is a book that explains how we integrate our communities and overcome racial segregation, along with all of the problems of inequality stemming from it. And among the number of really interesting themes coursing throughout the pages of this book is this idea that we require a solution as drastic as the problem. So you say in the first few pages that we require actions as powerful to diminish segregation as those that created it. And then you go on to say that what we're missing is not so much a new policy idea, but a reinvigorated civil rights movement. Can you talk, as you both do so well in the book, about the scale of the problem that we're dealing with when it comes to segregation and what, in your view, 
a reinvigorated civil rights movement to meet that problem looks like? Sure. The the powerful, the power of the, the segregation that we created comes from, as you said, actions of federal, state, and local governments. They were blatantly unconstitutional. The segregation of our society is a blatantly unconstitutional residue of the policies that were enacted in the 20th century. And because they're blatantly unconstitutional, they require a remedy. Now, if you have segregated buses and you change the law to say that, okay, you can no longer segregate buses, that remedy is pretty quick. But once you've established two completely separate societies, as the Kerner Commission said, one black, one white, separate but unequal, uh, on a permanent basis, it takes very powerful policies to redress it. Now, the one advantage we have is that once you've created with unconstitutional and unlawful government policy, federal government policy, two separate societies, the maintenance and sustenance of it is not necessarily federal because you have these two separate societies in local communities and it's local policy that frequently reinforces it and sustains it. So there's enormous potential for local groups, committees of local citizens, black and white, biracial groups, to press for policies that are achievable at a local level that begin to whittle away at the segregation that uh, we have created unconstitutionally in this country. Now, we don't think it's going to be quick. It, obviously, it won't be quick, but there is no uh, quick way to do it. There is no national appetite for uh, federal policy that's going to wave a magic wand and completely change the residential structures of our communities. But there are so many ways that we can chip away at it at a local level that can build towards something really significant. And so we wrote Just Action to describe the many, many things that local citizens can do. Uh, but by ending together on a biracial basis, multi-ethnic basis, to uh, begin to whittle away at the segregation that we've created. And we think that if people start to do this, that they will make a significant dent. There's an enormous potential for this. Uh, in 2020, 20 million Americans participated in Black Lives Matter demonstrations. There's enormous, enormous support for this country, in this country, for racial justice, for narrowing racial equality. Uh, but after those demonstrations were over, and they included both whites and blacks, Hispanics, other ethnicities, middle class and lower income participants, suburban, white and urban uh, minority participants, when those demonstrations were over, people went home and many of them put Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns but did nothing further. And we thought that the reason they did nothing further in their local communities because they didn't know what to do and nobody had asked them to do anything. So the book Just Action is designed to give people many, many ideas from which they can choose about how to begin the process of redressing the segregation that our government, in our names, so unconstitutionally created. Mm. Part of your answer, you talked about this multiracial coalition 
that is required. Leah, one of the things I really enjoyed about this book was the continued courage you had to say some of the quiet parts out loud. For instance, you say, in a nation where whites have greater power and influence than others, a civil rights group without significant white participation will find it difficult to develop the community policies and financial support needed to win big victories. And I just think that all too often it's not acknowledged that white people, like all others, have a seat at the table in advancing racial justice work and a major role to play. Was the choice to be in some ways really blunt about the condition of our country when it comes to race something that was intentional when you were writing this book? It definitely was. It was something we talked about a lot in writing the book, in particular that sentence. And, um, you know, I think it's important to note that it's not just that whites have an important role to play and that we can't achieve the gains we want to see without white involvement, involvement from white communities, but that whites have an obligation. You know, we all as residents, as citizens of this country have an obligation to remedy the harms caused by government actions taken in the past that were unconstitutional and that continue to have ongoing consequences today. So it's not just that sort of we need white support and whites should um, participate, but that we all have this obligation to redress the harms of that our government imposed on us and we're all paying for. And, you know, it's not this isn't just a problem a black problem, an African-American problem. It's a it's an issue that affects all of us. And it, um, you know, it harms all of our communities. It keeps us polarized. It keeps us separate. It creates and underlies, you know, the most serious racial disparities and social problems of our country. And we can't sort of get past that and make gains unless we're all involved and all step up to the obligation we have to address it. Hmm. Leah, I want to stay with you for a minute. Something I found really interesting in the book was this theme of people's values not always aligning with their behaviors when it comes to redressing uh, the segregation that you were just talking about and supporting racial integration. And a couple of quick examples, you talk about a 2022 survey that found that two-thirds of white adults had not discussed a single important matter with a non-white person in the previous six months yet half of white adults reported wishing they had more racially and ethnically diverse friend groups with whom they could have such conversations. In another part of the book, you talk about how single-family zoning in middle-class white areas may be the most powerful policy driving racial segregation because it bans less expensive dwellings that most Black Americans can afford, like townhomes, apartments, and duplexes. Then you say that even voters who claim to support the abolishment of needlessly restrictive zoning rise in opposition to proposals for reform because when they claim that they support racial integration, they don't actually want to see it in their own backyards. So I guess the question is, when we're dealing with this seemingly massive delta between people saying they value racial integration and their behaviors not always living up to that, how do we get to this reinvigorated civil rights movement that you both talk about so well that includes a significant amount of white participation? 
I think it's through community organizing, talking to our neighbors and making connections and talking about these issues openly. So um, the example you give about suburban communities, single family only zoned areas that don't allow any other type of housing, but large single family homes, that that type of zoning has been used to replace racialized zoning from the early 20th century and has the effect of keeping those communities all white. Now, many people in those communities, we argue, are people who showed up to Black Lives Matter protests, are people who understand or could understand um, sort of the implications of that zoning on the makeup of their community, on the inaccessibility of their community, the unaffordability of their community. Now, the people who oppose zoning changes and who oppose new housing developments, you know, they're often called NIMBYs, not in my backyard. There are people who think that they will be negatively impacted by changes to their neighborhood. They think their property taxes will go down. They're afraid of crime or overcrowded neighborhoods, sort of all of these um, thinly veiled racial statements about what will happen if, if the makeup of their neighborhood changes. Well, they show up, they're vocal, they're consistent in showing up at planning commission meetings and city council meetings because they feel highly motivated by what they see as what they expect to be a personal negative impact. Now, now I argue, and I think it's true that they are not actually negatively impacted. Property taxes don't, property values don't decline when new multifamily housing is built in these communities. But what's more important is that there are a lot of people in those communities who will be who will feel positively impacted by having a more inclusive community by having the kind of interactions that you cited from another part of our book that people want to have more conversations and more social connections with people of other races so what it takes is getting out and talking to those people getting out to our neighbors talking to each other understanding that this housing development actually is directly connected with our ability to have a more inclusive and diverse neighborhood and then showing up because of the personal impact that we feel feeling motivated to show up and support these efforts on the local level it's Boom. not impossible we have examples of communities that have done it where you might think it's impossible for you know the side of more housing more dense housing and and less restrictive zoning it would be impossible to pass and those communities you know i write about in our substack column a community in silicon valley in california very expensive um exclusive community that uh, a housing development for teachers to be affordable for teachers because most teachers or a third of teachers would leave their jobs every year in this in this community because they couldn't find housing that was affordable near the school district. So when this housing development was proposed, a group of neighbors tried to block it. They put a measure on the ballot that would have blocked this development and any future rezoning efforts. And community members who had been sort of studying the history of their community and how it came to be segregated and all of the policies that went into creating their segregated community understood that this was another piece in that puzzle. And they went door to door and talked to neighbors and ran a campaign to defeat this ballot measure and they won. Um, so that teacher housing will be built and future rezoning efforts are still possible. Hmm. Richard, I want to spend some time discussing a part of the book that I really appreciated, and it's the time that you take to talk about implicit bias and how a lot of organizations invest time and energy into giving their teams implicit bias trainings that are often unsuccessful at reducing bias and can sometimes have a negative backlash. And while you both acknowledge in the book that there's a need for education on racial segregation as a prelude to actionable measures, 
you say that the more important thing uh, than trying to eliminate implicit bias is taking action that redresses segregation. And if the action is successful, implicit bias will naturally wither because over time, as experiences and observations change, stereotypes adapt. Can you expand on how and why taking action to redress segregation will cause implicit bias to wither and the danger of maybe relying too heavily on racial bias trainings and uh, programs like that? Sure. Um, as you said, uh, another term for uh, bias is stereotypes. And how do people's stereotypes develop? People's stereotypes develop because they take mental shortcuts when they see either in the media or they hear about situations that um, they don't have any direct experience with, but that create their stereotypes. So, for example, if we create um, overcrowded, segregated neighborhoods and consign African-Americans to them, places that are overcrowded because uh, African-Americans have been denied opportunities to have the wealth that comes from uh, owning homes over time as they've appreciated in value. Uh, so they're overcrowded. They're less well-resourced. Uh, they, uh, the, the schools are overwhelmed with social and economic problems. Well, many whites who have no experience with understanding the reasons for this look at those neighborhoods and they conclude that African-Americans are naturally slum dwellers because that's what they see. They see we've created slums, low-income neighborhoods, and placed African-Americans in it. The best way to counter that bias is to have mutual exchanges between African-Americans and whites. And we talk in the book, Just Action, about people who've actually done that and all of a sudden realize that their stereotypes were wrong. And they began to relate to each other in different ways. So uh, I'll give another example. Uh, African-Americans have been, as you, as you know, we talk about it all the time, disproportionately imprisoned for uh, minor crimes sometimes, sometimes no crimes at all for which whites are not imprisoned. Uh, minor traffic violations, then, then uh, the fines accumulate and it winds up um, landing people in jail. Well, most white people don't understand the origins of this disproportionate policing and 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 incarceration that places many more African Americans in in jails and prisons than whites. And so they look around and they say, "Oh, well, black people are naturally criminals. We don't want them in our neighborhoods." Well, the best way to eliminate that kind of stereotyping is to end the discriminatory policing. And then when people look at neighborhoods where African-Americans live, they won't conclude that African-Americans are naturally criminals. So some of the, the NIMBY characteristics and attitudes that Leah has described is a result of um, people looking at the unequal societies that we've created and having no better uh, way to understand it, assume that we're naturally unequal. And the best way to eliminate that kind of attitude is to reduce the inequality. I would add, you know, another point we make in the book about implicit bias is that it is, you know, 
important to look at our own internal biases and stereotypes, but what's more important in sort of addressing these issues in our communities is taking action. And so, you know, both of those efforts have to go hand in hand. You know, we have to address our own internal biases and, and um, uh, you know, racial stereotypes that we hold, but then we also have to take action to change the conditions that create those stereotypes and change the conditions that maintain the segregation of our communities. So just, just looking internally isn't quite enough. Hmm. Yeah. And Leah, in the book, the two of you do a really excellent job of distinguishing without minimizing the different challenges faced by different marginalized groups, which was something I thought was really, really well done. So you say that blurring groups together as, quote, people of color impedes clear thinking about how to craft remedies for the distinct harms each group has suffered. And what I thought was really powerful was where you highlighted two examples of remedial policies from the Biden administration that would have helped black communities, but were ultimately blocked by courts because their remedies extended to essentially everyone but white people, even though there was almost no evidence that members of those other racial and ethnic groups had experienced the type of discrimination shared by black Americans that the policies sought to address. Can you talk about the importance of crafting policies aimed specifically at redressing the harm segregation has caused to black Americans? And and maybe if you could also discuss the problems that can occur when governments take this sort of reckless kitchen sink approach and blindly throw every group that's not white into a remedial policy. Yeah, well, I think to answer the second part of your question first, that example, um, from the Biden administration that, you know, would have been a benefit for basically everyone but white men. The problem with that is it doesn't have the political support then to pass and it doesn't have the legal justification to be upheld in court. You know, we we argue in um, just action that we have to be very specific about our remedies to remedy the very specific harms that the government um, created. And many of those harms were, or, or the ones we focus on, were focused on intentionally, um, you know, segregating African Americans from whites and and um, creating African American segregated neighborhoods that had fewer resources and um, public investments than white neighborhoods. So we need to remedy those specific harms. And if we attempt to remedy them with non-specific solutions, you know, sort of uh, solutions that vaguely benefit everyone, not only will they not benefit the African-Americans who've suffered those harms, but they won't be, you know, help be um, defensible. So I'll, I'll give one example of, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, diminishing the racial wealth gap and the racial home ownership gap. And one way to do that is providing down payment assistance for African-American families who, you know, don't have intergenerational wealth because they were kept out of home ownership when it was affordable, when the federal government was subsidizing um, home ownership for white families and excluding, explicitly excluding African-American families. So one way to remedy that is to provide down payment assistance for African-American homebuyers. Now, many um, jurisdictions, programs trying to do this, they shy away from making those programs race specific. And instead, they try workarounds like um, 
you know, first time home buyer programs because African Americans are more likely to be a first time home buyer when they're um, applying for a mortgage and buying a house. But a program that that is aimed at first time home buyers will benefit more whites than African Americans because there's more whites buying homes than African Americans. And so if we're trying to use that program to remedy the harms that kept African Americans out of home ownership and therefore unable to have the intergenerational wealth to pay for a down payment through this sort of racially neutral policy and remedy, it's not going to do the job. So um, what we argue um, over and over is that race-specific crimes require race-specific solutions, and we need to ensure that our solutions are directly connected to the harms that were caused. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, just to uh, make a fine point, uh, add a fine point to it, you say that in the book that racial justice groups should still work to address the discrimination that for instance, Hispanics and Asians have uh, and continue to suffer, but that African-American segregation from whites remains more severe and is declining much less than segregation of Hispanics and Asians, according to census data. So this idea of, you know, really targeting the targeting the remedy towards the specific group that's being most affected by it, I think just makes common sense in some ways. Yeah, I would agree. And I think a lot of the remedies that we propose, they will also benefit other groups, other, you know, Hispanic communities, um, Asian communities, um, th those ones that aren't race specific will benefit other communities that have been segregated and have suffered discrimination in housing. But we we do um, believe that we have to be very specific about um, addressing the very specific um, segregation of African-Americans from whites. Mm. Richard, in addition to everything Leah has just mentioned, I'm wondering if you could also speak to the danger of overgeneralized policies that are aimed at people of color, given how those policies can foment tension in race relations by maybe creating this problematic binary that pits white folks and sometimes just straight white men against all other ethnic and racial groups. Well, the only way I can re respond to that is simply by repeating what we've said before. What we say is that race-specific crimes require race-specific remedies. And uh, every remedy that we propose in just action that can be enacted at a local level and that can be advocated by local groups uh, are programs that are specifically designed to remedy specific violations. The federal government was not interested in discriminating against people of color in the 20th century. It was specifically interested in keeping African-Americans uh, from living in the same communities as whites. When the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administrations were subsidizing the suburbanization of this country, it was a period when there were very few, if any, other uh, minority groups in most of the country now, the West Coast is a completely different situation. And there was some specific targeted discrimination against other groups besides African-Americans in the West Coast and, and in some of the Southwestern states, certainly. But that's different from the, the policies that the federal government enacted to, for returning war veterans in, after World War II to subsidize their home ownership in all white uh, suburbs those were specifically um, uh, 
designed to prevent African-Americans in particular from living in those same communities. And uh, those programs, unconstitutional or unlawful, require very specific remedies, uh, remedies for the wealth gap that resulted from the fact that African-Americans were prohibited from purchasing homes by the federal government at a time when they were affordable and when whites purchased them only to see them escalate in value over the next couple of generations. Uh, the reason we have this enormous wealth gap in this country between African-Americans and whites is because Af uh, African-Americans deny the opportunity to own an asset that whites were subsidized to own, and that increased in value. And this was a racially specific program. It wasn't designed at people of color. Uh, it was designed specifically for African-Americans. There are very few people of color uh, other than African-Americans living in the Eastern and Midwestern and even Central states, certainly in the Southeast. And uh, the, the, it was African-Americans and whites. That's the kind of country we were. So the federal government, when it was enacting these unconstitutional policies, wasn't thinking about anybody else. Hmm. Richard, I want to stay with you for a moment because I think what you just said builds into uh, the next area I'd like to explore. And I'd like you to talk about affirmative action and the evidence in the book that explains how timid deference to the Supreme Court blocks racial equality. In the book, you say that today, a militant Supreme Court majority is hostile to affirmative action and any programs that promote desegregation, ignoring the history of how the United States came to be segregated. And then turning back to this theme that we require solutions equally as purposeful as segregation in order to reverse it, you say that, quote, diversity cannot fix our problems the way that race-based preferences can. And I think that the section where the two of you talk about single-family zoning offers a great discussion to illustrate this point because, again, you say that single-family zoning is likely the most powerful police, uh, the, the most powerful policy perpetuating segregation. But in the same place, you explain that even if cities and suburbs change their exclusionary zoning rules, it would likely lead to an increased housing supply but still wouldn't guarantee reverse segregation because without an affirmative action plan, white people who on average earn far more than African-Americans, as you mentioned, are likely to outbid uh, black people for new units. So can you talk about the importance of affirmative action to undo state-sanctioned residential segregation and what you describe in the book about how the Supreme Court, in many ways, led by Chief Justice John Roberts, has actually been a barrier to affirmative action. Yes, well, you, you raise a very uh, important point. Because we have such an enormous housing shortage in this country today that affects not just African-Americans, but whites, middle-class white families can't afford housing in the markets of, t of many cities in this country, most cities in this country. Uh, our housing prices have escalated uh, beyond the means of most white and black families. So if we change zoning uh, to permit the creation of duplexes and triplexes, in most places, whites are going to outbid blacks for them. 
we think it's a racial justice move. And in some places, those zoning reforms have been motivated by a desire for racial justice, but they won't accomplish it because of this enormous housing shortage. So if we want to ensure that the kind of zoning reform that permits duplexes, triplexes, even quadruplexes in single family neighborhoods, we're going to have to ensure that it's not only white. So I, I recall I once, uh, not so long ago, was at a meeting in Massachusetts, which had um, uh, passed the law requiring the suburbs of Boston to abolish single family zoning. That's a a, a little bit of an exaggeration, but most part, uh, abolish single family zoning. And the um, the city manager of one of those suburbs says he completely supported that uh, law. He thought that abolishing that single family zoning was a good idea because the children who grew up in his suburb couldn't afford to move back there. And the, the creation of um, more modestly priced homes would permit the children, of course, all of whom were white, to move back to that community. Well, that's what will happen if uh, we simply abolish single family zoning in communities like that and don't have a some kind of way of ensuring that African-Americans have access to the new units that are created. Mm. Yeah, Leah, along the lines of what Richard was just talking about, I found it really striking in the book, this section where the two of you talk about the disappearance of affordable middle-class housing. You know, you talk about how nationwide adequate dwellings are now too expensive for households earning between forty dollars and $80,000 a year. Uh, and so we're talking about teachers, nurses, police officers, folks like that. And you say that despite the stereotype that black and poor are almost the same thing, most African-Americans fall within this middle income group while only about one in six African-Americans is actually poor. And then you go on to explain that partly because of this ill-conceived notion that we can undo racial segregation with housing for the poor, most affordable housing consists of federally subsidized apartments for extremely low-income households. And developers who want to create homes for the missing middle class are left with few financial resources to do so. Can you expand a bit on this lack of affordable housing for the missing middle and how we can address that issue as part of a larger mission to further community integration? Yeah, well, I think it starts with how we use the term affordable housing. It's often used to refer to housing that's affordable to the lowest income families. So subsidized housing, you know, housing that's subsidized by the federal government is that which is affordable to the very low income um, families and households. And that's what we sort of assume uh, the term affordable housing includes and is limited to. But as you mentioned, and as we've been talking about, you know, there's a, a growing number of families and households in this country who are in this, what we call the missing middle. They make too much to qualify for subsidized low income housing. They're not very low income, but they don't make enough to afford to be able to afford market rate housing. Most African-American families fall into that missing middle category. So if we're trying to redress segregation by only building subsidized low income housing, we're not addressing the true problem and the gap in housing that's affordable to this missing middle group. Now, it's true that there is insufficient funding to build affordable housing. So that funding goes towards this very low income 
uh, group. And that, you know, makes sense because they're the most needy amongst us. But we need to be creative and we need to find uh, different ways of creating um, public subsidies or incentives for the private market to develop uh, middle income housing. And we give some examples of communities doing that. You know, one example is inclusionary zoning policies. So that's a policy passed by local city councils, planning commissions, that requires that when new housing is built in a community, a certain percentage of the units have to be affordable. Now that term affordable is defined by that community in their inclusionary zoning law. It can include um, units for very low income families. It can also include re a requirement that that private developer includes middle income units in their developments. And I would say that the best inclusionary zoning policies offer an array of options for the developer to comply. And it can be that they offer fewer units that are very low income um, or more units that are middle income, aff affordable to middle income families. So that's one way of addressing some of the need for middle income housing without requiring public subsidy. This uh, inclusionary zoning creates affordable units without requiring any public subsidy to go into them. It's the cost of building market rate housing in that community to provide some affordable units. So that's one way we're also... Um, you know, we we're continuing to write and research, and I'm I'm keeping my ears open for examples around the country of communities that are creating funding streams or ways to subsidize developments to include middle income housing, um, and that's essential. And um, you know, we sort of argue also we need to address this missing middle need for housing, and we also need to address uh, you know the the need for building mixed income developments and mixed income communities. So if we're talking about desegregating suburban communities and we're only concerned with putting very low income housing in those communities and consider that, you know, that we've addressed the desegregation of that community, we're not meeting a, we're not meeting the whole need of the African-American population for middle income housing, and we're not creating a viable, you know, integrated neighborhood. In order to do that, we need economic integration that includes very low income, low income, middle income, and affluent families. So when we're building, you know, affordable housing in these suburban communities, well, in all communities, they should include all levels of affordability to create um, mixed income, mixed race developments, and not sort of just include very low income uh, developments in affluent communities, because that doesn't create a sustainable long-term integration. Hmm. Yeah, you talk in the book as well about how having the poorest of Black community members uh, integrated into the wealthiest of white, community member, uh, white communities with no real middle to sort of mediate that creates... Uh, problem when it comes to tolerance. You know, we think diversity is always going to be a positive thing, but scenarios like that where there is such an extreme gap between them, you describe how that can actually produce tension. And I, I'm assuming that that's another one of the, uh, the motivators for really providing uh, middle income housing. That's right. We need that middle income group to have true diversity. Diversity doesn't mean just having the most affluent and the poorest people in one community, that's not true diversity. We also need everyone in the middle and they create sort of the connections between those two groups that without that middle group, um, you're right, they create, there's tension that builds between the most affluent and the poorest um, populations. 
Hmm. Richard, I want to turn to another section of the book that I really found interesting, which was the discussion about gentrification. You talk about how our housing patterns don't just segregate people, they segregate resources, leaving some areas wealthy and others completely impoverished. But when you describe the need for greater investment in low-income segregated black areas, you explain that whenever we succeed in improving conditions, gentrification is likely to occur, uh, ultimately displacing the black communities that live there. Um, And then you say that aggressive policies can help ensure that large numbers of African-American households remain as the neighborhood becomes diverse. And Leah mentioned one of those uh, policies, which was inclusionary zoning. Another one that I thought was interesting was Uh, the use of community land trusts to preserve affordable housing. I'm wondering if you could talk about that and uh, and what that looks like to support the effort of holding off the displacement that comes with gentrification. Well, we can't hold it off completely. Uh, The the idea that uh, you can have a well-resourced neighborhood and uh, an all-black neighborhood is fancy. It can't happen because as a neighborhood improves its resources, all kinds of people go on and find that neighborhood attractive and want to live there. The only way to keep a neighborhood homogeneously African-American is to keep it poor. So it's inevitable that as you improve the resources in lower income neighborhoods, providing better job opportunities, uh, better transportation, uh, better school funding, uh, markets selling fresh and healthy food. Uh, as you do that, uh, other people are going to want to move in. But there are things that local groups can do to ensure that um, large numbers of people are not displaced. Some will be. Some uh, African-American homeowners are going to want to sell their homes at big profits when that happens. You can't stop that from happening. You shouldn't have stopped that from happening. That's how whites gain wealth. But you can stabilize the community to ensure that it remains racially diverse and doesn't flip from being all black to all white. Uh, Leah mentioned inclusionary zoning as one of them. You mentioned another one, which is land trusts. A land trust is a nonprofit organization that uh, gets donated land, and there's lots of uh, vacant land in low-income neighborhoods, uh, land sometimes that results from... uh, home foreclosures or abandonment as they've deteriorated, uh, empty lots that have never been developed. Uh, A land trust uh, gets that land, sometimes donated by a city or county, sometimes purchased uh, by uh, um, uh, with with funds from 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 foundations. And it builds homes on those uh, those lots and retains title to the land. Now, the reason for the rising cost of housing in this country is primarily the increase in the cost of the land, not the cost of the construction. It doesn't cost that much more uh, for a carpenter to work in a urban area than in a suburban area. The housing cost, the housing costs themselves are not that different. The difference is the uh, value of the land, the desirability of the land. So if a land trust owns the land and only sells the home on it, it can sell it at a more affordable price and preserve uh, 
the existing uh, population in those homes. And there are some several hundred land trusts across the country. Some of them are building homes. Some of them are uh, uh, renting apartments that uh, are lower cost and uh, permit people with lower incomes, particularly the previous residents of those communities, they're income restricted, typically, to own homes. When those residents want to move and sell their homes, the land trust typically restricts the price of the sale. It doesn't prevent, it doesn't require them to sell it at exactly the price they bought it from. Every land trust has a different formula, but it restricts the price so that it's still affordable to middle-income, lower-income families who used to live in that community and can now still afford to buy a home on the land trust where they could not afford to buy a home that might be on the next block that um, uh, is is uh, not in the land trust and therefore has escalated prices that nobody can afford except the affluent. And, you know, throughout uh, Just Action, when we describe these kinds of reforms uh, that can be enacted at a local level, they don't require any federal government participation. Um, we always give an example of someplace that's done it. So in just that, and we try to pick those examples from all regions of the country, from uh, both uh, north and south, east and west. For the land trust example, we feature a land trust in Durham, North Carolina, in an area that was uh, gentrifying uh, uh, because it was near Duke University. And uh, that land trust was able to preserve housing opportunities, not for everybody. They couldn't buy up enough land, get enough land donated to um, own the land under the entire area near uh, Duke University, but they bought some land and had donated other land and the homes on those on those uh, land trust uh, properties are less expensive, they're income restricted, and they're available to free previous residents of those communities. So that's another type and there are others as well, uh, other policies as well that can be followed by local jurisdictions to preserve um, uh, affordability and therefore preserve the opportunity for the previous residents of a gentrifying community to remain. The countless anecdotes in the book were probably the most inspiring part of it because, as you said, every recommendation that you're providing in the book is something that's been done before by a group somewhere at some level, which just goes to show that it really isn't impossible, notwithstanding the fact that it does seem like such an enormous challenge to, uh, to desegregate communities. Leah, you also talk in the book about creating healthy spaces for resettlement when members of a community are displaced and denying developers the right to place low-income family units in disadvantaged neighborhoods that are not undergoing gentrification. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this goes back to the point earlier about creating healthy mixed-income neighborhoods. Um, you know, often subsidized low-income housing is, is built often in low-income communities. So it further concentrates poverty, further segregates those communities. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that there's maybe more land available in those communities. There's less community opposition. There's also pieces of how those public subsidies are allocated that incentivize building um, 
subsidize low-income housing in low in already low-income communities. Now that brings, you know, new development and new housing to those communities, but it doesn't do anything to uh, challenge those communities' segregation. And so we propose um, many ideas of what we can do about this. One is the the way these public subsidies, it's called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program. It's the largest public subsidy for building low-income housing. It's a federal tax credit. It's allocated by state housing agencies. And those state housing agencies create a plan that say how the tax credits will be allocated because there aren't enough to go around. So it's a competitive process. And in order to get an allocation, you have to sort of meet all of the requirements plus the bonus um, point system on, on those allocation plans. Now, often in many states, to get all of the points that you need to get an allocation of tax credits, you need community support. You need demonstrated community support for those projects. And it's difficult to get that demonstrated community support from suburban communities that you know often fight low-income housing from being placed in them. And so one thing that we can do on a local level is participate in the state allocation planning process. Every year they adopt a new allocation plan, every state they have to take public participation. So we can participate in that process and say that we want those plans to reflect a desire to, to desegregate our communities and to place low-income housing in higher-income communities, not only in low-income communities. One way to do that is to change how the plans are written and how the points are allocated so that a community doesn't need demonstrated community support in order to receive an allocation to build low-income housing. That's sort of one issue in this puzzle. But what we need to be doing is building middle-income and market-rate housing in lower-income communities and lower-income and middle-income housing in higher-income communities in order to create mixed-income communities that are desegregated economically and racially in all types of communities. Hmm. Leah, staying with you for just a moment, I want to bring it back to what each individual person can do. And specifically, when we're talking about middle class homeowners who have moved into urban neighborhoods, uh, one of the areas that you talk about in the section on gentrification is this idea of conscious gentrification. Can you explain a bit about what that is? Yeah, we quoted from a person who lived in a community that was gentrifying. He identifies as a gentrifier. He's lived in many gentrifying communities. And he wrote a pamphlet to hand out to his neighbors, his fellow gentrifiers, called How to Be a Conscientious Gentrifier. And in it, he identified, what was it, eight or more ways that people moving into a community that was gentrifying could be forces for good in that community rather than you know, displacing people and and not um, interacting with the long-term institutions and people who live in that neighborhood. I think often one of the harms of gentrification is that the people moving in don't interact with the longtime residents and businesses and institutions of that community. And they sort of are, it feels like they're an occupying force. They come in, they displace the longtime residents and they create their own institutions and businesses. So this pamphlet of how to be a conscientious gentrifier gave all of these ways that people could interact with their local institutions, learn about the local institutions, learn about the new developments and how the community feels about them, be friendly to the neighbors, be friendly to the people you see in the park, um, patronize local businesses that have been there for a long time, 
send your kids to the local public schools, all of these ways for people who are moving into a, you know, formerly low income segregated community can become active and participatory members of that community. And that can sort of stave off some of the the negative impacts of gentrification by creating social connections and um, uh, more positive relationships. Hmm. Richard, you and Leah talk in a number of sections of, um, of Just Action about policy initiatives in the landlord-tenant context that can be taken to increase housing opportunities for members of low-income segregated communities. And one of the initiatives you mentioned, which several cities and states have adopted, is called the Ban the Box Rule, which curbs landlords' rights to require applicants to check a box if they've been convicted or arrested. Can you talk about the relationship between segregation, homelessness, and the criminal system, and how the ways landlords use an applicant's criminal history perpetuate um, what you call the revolving door of incarceration? Well, sure. The When somebody is released from jail or prison, the best way to ensure that they don't return to the criminal justice system is to give them stable housing. When we pass laws that prohibit um, released prisoners from getting stable housing, we're guaranteeing that they are going to, almost guaranteeing that they're going to return to the criminal justice system. We all know that African-Americans are frequently arrested for trivial offenses for which whites are not arrested. This does not make them bad citizens if they drive with a broken taillight or change lanes without signaling or stand on the street corner talking with their friends. African-Americans are frequently arrested for these um, lifestyle uh, offenses for which whites are not arrested, and therefore they're likely to be in the criminal justice system and have arrest records. Some of these laws don't even uh, require that you be convicted. They say if you've been arrested, you can't obtain housing. And a landlord uh, in some places is even required to uh, not rent to you. So that's what we mean by a revolving door. Uh, the two things that a released prisoner needs is stable housing and a job. Well, you can't get a job without stable housing. So stable housing and the ability to reintegrate into the community is an essential step towards reducing uh, the return of, of, of the formerly incarcerated to prison, uh, recidivism. And we write in, in Just Action about how important it is to have reasonable restrictions on landlords' ability to exclude former prisoners. Certainly, there are some serious crimes that neighbors should not have to have in other neighbors, histories of serious crimes. So we're not suggesting that there should be no restrictions on who can live in a, an apartment building um, based on their previous records. But they're much, much too restrictive in many places, and uh, they increase uh, recidivism, the return of, of prisoners uh, to uh, prisons and jails. Hmm. Leah, building off of what Richard just said, 
Towards the end of the book, you also talk about the need to desegregate schools and along the lines of uh, the revolving door of incarceration, you also mention the school to prison pipeline. Can you talk about uh, what you describe in the book uh, as far as needing to desegregating, needing to desegregate schools going hand in hand with needing to desegregate residential communities? Sure. The segregation of schools, local public schools and neighborhoods go hand in hand. Uh, we can't sort of desegregate our schools unless we desegregate our neighborhoods. Uh, so both are essential and equally important. It's that's sort of a cyclical um, feedback loop, right? If your neighborhood is segregated, your schools will be segregated. And if the schools are segregated, it'll likely perpetuate the segregation of that neighborhood because people of other races won't want to move in and send their kid to a, a segregated school where nobody looks like their kids. Um, and so we have to address both of these issues hand in hand. Um, and the the another sort of, you know, the segregation of our, our schools underlies a lot of our racial disparities in our in this country. So children who go to segregated lower income, you know, segregated African American schools and African American neighborhoods, those neighborhoods, the children in those neighborhoods come to school with a variety of impediments. You know, they are likely more likely to have asthma than their white counterparts in other neighborhoods that go to all white schools. And they come to school after being up all night wheezing, it's harder to learn. Um, they also are more likely to have had contact with police and live in more stressful environments. And so it's also harder to learn. So those segregated schools have a harder time sort of uh, overcoming all of the challenges of not every student maybe has all of those challenges, but a school where all of those challenges are concentrated, those schools have a hard time overcoming those so that those students can achieve and learn. Now, another um, issue that comes up in segregated schools and segregated neighborhoods is this uh, over-policing of schools where a majority African-American student population or a diverse student population. Those schools are more likely to have security guards that sort of respond to student behavior with punitive, um, sometimes even criminal um, responses where children get cited, uh, suspended, or expelled for, for behavior that in white schools, children are not responded to in the same way. They're more likely to have social workers or have a more holistic view of the student's behavior, and they're not criminalized based on how they act in elementary school. So when students are criminalized and sort of um, start into the, the criminal justice system as young students because of how their school responds to their normal children behavior, um, they then enter what's called the school to prison pipeline. Um, if you are, uh, you know, cited and expelled or suspended as a child, you're more likely to end up in the criminal justice system as an adult. Um, and so in order to address that issue, we need to address the segregation of our schools and how we respond to student behavior in those schools. Now, the way to do that is to desegregate um, our learning environments, because in more desegregated, integrated schools, we're more likely to have those things like social workers, restorative justice, um, more holistic views of student behavior rather than the criminal response to student misbehavior. Um, so those those all go hand in hand and are essential to addressing the ongoing, not only segregation of our neighborhoods, but the ongoing racial disparities and issues um, with uh, racial equity in our society.
Yeah, listening to you talk through all of it, it really just underscores, as you said, how these issues go hand in hand. The way that segregation, residential segregation, underlies our deepest social problems. It's just, you know, the the web. When you take a look at it at a high level, I mean, it's just astonishing. Richard, I want to uh, talk about um, something that you cover towards again the end of the book. Where you describe how African Americans are deeply disadvantaged by how we calculate、uh, property's value, and I was just really struck by this sort of double whammy of black homes being overassessed by governments, leading black homeowners to pay higher property taxes per dollar for their homes than their wealthier white counterparts, and simultaneously black homes being underappraised by appraisers. Limiting African Americans' wealth-building potential for home ownership. Can you talk about some of the reasons why these harmful valuations occur in the first place, and explain about how you argue in the book that African Americans are owed refunds due to the discriminatory effects of methods used to calculate and collect property taxes on Black homes? Sure, it's very important to distinguish these two issues of、uh, property assessments. Are、uh, values placed on homes by government, by、uh, city assessors or county assessors? It's a public official, sometimes, in many cases, elected.、Uh, uh, appraisals is a private activity that's、uh, conducted by banks, trying to determine how much money can be lent、uh, to a potential buyer. So these are two entirely separate issues, and people sometimes get them confused. So、I'm, let me talk first about assessments. This is a purely local issue. The federal government has nothing to do with it.、Uh, ta- property taxes、uh, are a local tax. The way they work is a county or city assessor places a value on every home in its jurisdiction, and then uh, uh, property is taxed based on that value or some or or a standard percentage of that value. The problem is that. Assessors, county assessors, and city assessors have very limited ways to establish what the real value of a home is. They can't inspect it inside. They do a visual outside inspection, maybe not too frequently. So let's just take one one aspect of that: not too frequently. Let's say that a, a county or a city does an assessment every ten years, and simply in the intervening time adjusts the assessed value of every home. By some standard inflation factor, which is what mostly happens. Very few jurisdictions, if any, do a reassessment every year. Well, in those intervening ten years, properties in higher-income neighborhoods, white neighborhoods particularly, appreciate in value faster than properties in black neighborhoods, low-income neighborhoods. When that happens, the assessed value of a home in a white neighborhood starts to fall farther and farther below its real market value. At a much faster rate than the assessed value of a home in a black neighborhood, which remains much closer to its market value, the result is that African Americans are paying taxes at a higher rate relative to their market value than whites are paying. This is a blatantly discriminatory property tax system that exists in virtually every community in the country, and it's not.、Um, this is not something we made up in just action. Tax assessors admit it; they don't have a solution to solve it, but、mm-hmm. they admit it. 
The result is that, as I say, uh, African-Americans and low-income homeowners are paying property taxes at a higher rate than whites. They do, they're bearing a greater burden of supporting all the institutions that are supported by property taxes, schools, fire departments, libraries. Uh, it's a discriminatory system. And as you say, uh, we say in just action that uh, African-American homeowners who've been over-assessed in this way, that is because their assessments are closer to their market values than white homeowners, are entitled to refunds for this overtaxation. But it won't happen unless community groups organize to press for reform in the property tax system. And this is the main message uh, of our book throughout in every aspect, that unless uh, engaged and concerned community members, black and white, because as you started, this is not something that African-Americans have uh, the political power to fix on their own. Uh, and so unless communities organize and mobilize to conduct campaigns, to reform this property tax system, it's going to continue. And it's going to contribute to the um, wealth gap that we talked about at, at the beginning of this uh, podcast, because if African-Americans are paying taxes at a higher rate than whites are paying, what it means is that they are saving less money and having less of an opportunity to uh, accumulate wealth. So that's the property taxes. Let's move to appraisers. Appraisals is a purely private activity, unlike assessments. It's conducted by banks who appraise homes to determine what they're, uh, how much they could be resold for in order to um, decide how much to lend to a potential buyer because the amount of a mortgage is based on what the actual resale value is likely to be. So if the homeowner defaults and the bank possesses the home, they want to be able to sell it. So they need to know how much they can sell it for in the event of a default. That's the purpose of appraisals. Well, we know that appraisals are also discriminatory, but it's less clear what the reason for that is. Uh, the reason we know that appraisals are, are discriminatory is because systematically national studies show that appraised values for black homes and homes in black neighborhoods are typically a lower share of the market value of homes than the appraised values in white neighborhoods. Now, that causes a number of problems. The appraised values, it's a circular thing. If the appraised values are too low in a black neighborhood, that means they're also going to be able to sell it for less because a bank won't lend a new buyer as much money. Well, how do you fix this? It's difficult because while there is one assessor to do property tax assessments in each jurisdiction, there are thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of appraisers around the country working for banks, evaluating the application uh, for mortgages. And it's very difficult to know without multiple appraisers, appraisals of the same property, which uh, appraisers are undervaluing a home and which appraisers are not doing so. What we recommend in uh, Just Action is that banks be required to establish a system of vetting appraisers with reappraisals for a period of time to determine whether an appraiser is undervaluing a property to see if subsequent appraisals are, are equally low or, or at the same rate. 
Uh, that again requires uh, community support. The appraisers are local uh, private uh, officials, frequently former real estate agents. Uh, they're not federal government, nothing national about the appraisal system. And so again, it requires uh, campaigns against local banks that force them to have a system of guaranteeing, or at least trying to guarantee, that particular appraisers can be trusted not to undervalue a home in a black neighborhood. The last theme that I want to talk about with the two of you is accountability. And I'll, I'll put this to you, Leah. In the latter part of the book, you really stress the importance of holding accountable, uh, as Richard said, the bankers, but also developers, builders, realtors, even media outlets like newspapers, all of whom themselves or through their predecessors had a hand in segregation and requiring those industries to play a role in reversing it. And it reminds me of a reference you made earlier in the book to Susan Neiman's 2019 publication, Learning from the Germans, where she argues that Germany has done a better job of confronting their history of anti-Semitism than we in the United States have confronting our racist history. Can you talk about what accountability looks like and Richard mentioned one example, for instance, putting banks to task by requiring them to uh, try to guarantee that their appraisers will um, have some degree of, uh, of competence when it comes to bias. Uh, but if you could talk about other examples of what that looks like and um, not just accountability to remedy the past harms that have been done, but also to address the present day harms that are still being experienced. Well, I talked earlier about our individual obligation to redress the harms of segregation and to challenge segregation and provide remedies for the past harms of our government. Well, institutions and companies that had a, a hand in enforcing and creating the segregation of our communities, often because they were required by government, but not always, um, and they also have an obligation to redress the harms that they have played a role in causing. So those institutions, they include, like you said, banks, real estate associations, realtors, developers, builders, insurance companies, um, you know, all of these, these institutions and companies had a role to play in creating segregation and so have a role to play in challenging and undoing it. And we give an example, uh, a few examples in the book, one I'll mention from Charlottesville, where uh, uh a journalist there started to uncover all of the racially restrictive covenants in that area, in that city. These are the, the covenants written into the deeds of homes in the mid-20th century, required by government often for these developers who got federal subsidies to build these subdivisions or suburbs. The restrictive covenants say that the home can only ever be owned or occupied by whites. This is one of the tools for keeping African-Americans specifically out of home ownership when the country was developing, um, you know, expanding home ownership opportunities for whites. So these covenants, they're no longer legally enforceable, but they remain on the deeds of homes forever. This journalist started to uncover and uh, uncover the racially restrictive covenants and and got the community involved. Volunteers would, you know, look through all of the covenants and flag them if they had racially restrictive language, and they created an inventory and maps and a community education campaign. Now, along with the language in those uh, covenants that were racially restrictive, 
the deeds also name the companies that were involved with creating that home and selling it, you know, when it was sold on a restrictive discriminatory basis. So those deeds, they named the, the bank that first financed the home, the realtor that first sold it, the developer that built it, and the builder. So these four companies. Now we looked at the deeds from, from Charlottesville and of those four companies, many of them are still in business or have, they're all either still in business or have another company that had acquired that original business and is, is still operating in Charlottesville. So a campaign in Charlottesville for the redress of segregation could target those, those different companies and pressure them to live up to their obligation to remedy the segregation that they helped to create by building and selling and creating these communities on a racially discriminatory basis. And we give a lot of ideas of what they could do to live up to that obligation. They can donate, for example, to a land trust, like we talked about earlier, nonprofit organization creating permanently affordable housing. Um, they could, um, you know, address the the appraisal system. The banks can address the appraisal systems that they work in. They can address the credit scoring system that they use to uh, assess if if mortgage applicants are good candidates for a mortgage. And that credit scoring system is racially discriminatory in its impact. And so there's ways that local banks can address how they rate credit scores in order to be uh, more fair to African-American applicants. Um, they can donate to other sort of uh, efforts. They can support efforts like fair housing organizations that do a lot of work to counter and, and investigate and enforce anti-discrimination ordinances when it comes to housing discrimination. So there's a lot that these groups can do. Realtors, they can, um, you know, all of these organizations can donate to a down payment assistance program that would provide down payment assistance to African-American families who don't have that down payment assistance because they don't have that down payment themselves or from their, their parents or grandparents because they were for they were excluded from housing opportunities when those homes were first developed. So there's a lot that these companies can do, but many of them, most of them won't do it unless there's a local effort that's pressuring them to live up to this obligation. Mm. Yeah. And like you said in the book as well, something that I actually really appreciated was where you talked about how a lot of these companies uh, who helped cause segregation um, have today hired these DEI officers to train and diversify their staffs. And as a DEI officer, I really, really resonated with what you were saying when you're saying it's not enough to to train us about bias and to give, you know, uh, more of a diversity to the workforce. That is not the action that's required. Um, I thought that was really, really excellent. One of the parting messages of the book is that the work of stabilizing desegregation and pushing back against resegregation is never done. And I would ask both of you this question, and I'll put it to you first, Leah. Are there any words you want to leave us with for the multitudes of people who want to confront racial segregation and inequality in their cities and their local communities? Yeah, I would say I know that confronting segregation and racial inequality is a big ask. It's a big step. It feels overwhelming. It feels like there's not much we can do or not much impact we can have on this sort of racially in a, an unequal system that we live in that just feels like the the water we swim in, that there's not much that can be done. But we hope that through Just Action, readers and people listening to this will understand that there's actually so much that can be done. 
there are a lot of things we can do on the local level that can begin to chip away at all of the the scaffolding that that perpetuates and maintains segregation. Um, it doesn't sort of matter what any community starts with. There isn't a silver bullet that will solve all of these issues at once. We have to just go through them one by one, these sort of smaller incremental efforts to make change. But we have to start somewhere. So we hope that with Just Action, we um, demonstrate that there's enough to do, there's enough opportunity to make change and to, to really... Um, have an impact on the segregation of our communities that the excuse that we don't know what to do um, can't really apply anymore, that we just have to get started. Mm. Richard, any parting words uh, to members of uh, our listeners community who want to make a difference in their own communities and cities uh, to help with uh, desegregating communities and uh, building greater uh, equality? Well, no, I think Leah really said it better than I ever could. Um, the important thing is to take a first step. And uh, we do begin the just action by describing uh, groups of uh, blacks and whites who found a way to get together, to get to know each other, to create the basis for the kind of biracial, uh, multi-ethnic uh, group that uh, can be effective in making some of these changes. Richard and Leah Rothstein are a father and daughter dynamic duo and the co-authors of the new book, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. Richard and Leah, thank you so much for all the work that you do and for this hugely important piece of work that will no doubt inspire and guide many people in their efforts to make a difference and Thank you for joining me on the DEI podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The DEI podcast at Notre Dame Law School is produced by Notre Dame Studios. Every episode, we sit down with important voices in law, culture, society, and business to talk about issues that touch all of us. If you liked what you heard today, become a subscriber and get notified every time we upload an episode. And tune in next time for another great conversation on issues that touch us all. Until then, take care.